This is Reformers, the gritty details behind the world's greatest bootstrap success stories. In today's episode, I'm thrilled to have Lorianne Goldman, the former chief executive officer at Spanx. Before spending more than a decade as CEO at Spanx, Lorianne was a marketing executive at Coca-Cola, where she helped launch their famous polar bears concept that still exists today. In our interview, Lorianne provides a tactical look at how she helped Spanx grow from a small business into international icon, all without raising any outside capital. Without further ado, please welcome Lorianne Goldman. Hey. Hello. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Are you enjoying this first snow of the year? I <laughs> know. It's really funny, isn't it? It it's came like, out of nowhere. Wow, I know. I I hadn't even anticipated that it was coming, you know, like it was not an anticipation. Yeah, I had no idea. I was just uh, looking outside and I was like, hey, is that snow? I do. Um, well, you know, you sit in front of your computer all day and then my my doorbell rings every once in a while. And so I you know, ran down to get a package and I was like, whoa, you know, that's <laughs> crazy. Yeah, so I figured we'd start off by learning more about your background before you joined Spanx, what you were doing, uh, I guess what drove you to, you know, to take the job and, and sure. your experiences beforehand. Yeah, I spent 10 years at the Coca-Cola company prior to joining Spanx, um, and it was the coolest place to be during that decade, and I, I started a business um, really from scratch at Coca-Cola. It was called being an entrepreneur at the time. Um, But we had a trademark protection program where there were lawyers that really protected all of our intellectual property, you know, across the world. And um, I was asked by the CEO to look at that and see if I could figure out how it could not be such a cost center can really turn this into a major business. So um, invented polar bears for Coca-Cola, which are still around today and wonderful merchandise. And so we had, you know, hundreds and hundreds of products sold um, across lots of categories from collectible Coca-Cola things to apparel to polar bear slippers and everything you can think of in between. And is that something you'd done before? Had you dealt with launching consumer products, physical consumer products? Um, I had spent some time in retail um, in my first few years out of school, and I did launch a lot of brands then. Um, I was never on the buying and selling side of, of retail. I was on the how do you make things exciting for um, anyone who walked into the store. So I launched uh, DKNY. Um, for example, a lot of fragrance brands and, you know, created that momentum um, for people to really be entertained and have a great time, you know, while they were, they were in our brick and mortar stores. Very cool. And then you mentioned something before uh, about intrapreneurship, which I think is a fascinating topic. Having been both uh, an entrepreneur and then really entrepreneurial and running Spanx afterward, which we'll get to. Uh, any major differences you see? And is one more challenging than the other? 
Well, I think being an entrepreneur, you know, you have a lot of assets to start off with, you know, so I grew this, the Coca-Cola licensing business, but, you know, I had at the time, you know, over a hundred years of, of, you know, archival and advertising content, you know, that I could use to do that. Um, you know, the negative with being an entrepreneur is, you know, you're part of a, a much bigger organization with, you know, lots of bureaucracy and sign-offs. You know, it's the exact opposite in, uh, you know, when you're an entrepreneur, you know, you don't have any of those assets, but, you know, you also don't have all the bureaucracy. I joke and say that, you know, every little company wants to be a big company and every big company wants to be a little company. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> a lot of truth, you know, in that, you know, big companies want to be more nimble, you know, little companies, you know, want to have more scale, you know, so, um, so it's a good tension, actually. Yeah, that's really interesting insight. And shifting gears toward Spanx, how did that job come along? How did you end up joining the company? And, and what was your ultimate criteria for making that decision? <laughs> well, I, um, I guess I'll, you know, start with this really fabulous experience I had at Coca-Cola, which was the last role that I had there. I was um, in a strategy role um, working for, you know, one of the, the, you know, top people in, in the company. And as part of leadership training, I was asked to be one of 20 people to go into kind of a, a deep dive on what at the time we called learning organization. Um, today, it would be a mission and purpose driven organization that would be, you know, um, focused on something greater than what they did. And Coke was feeling it was very hierarchical and was looking to take, you know, these 20 seedlings from around the world at Coca-Cola and, you know, immerse them in kind of authentic leadership, um, systems archetypes, um, a lot of the work that Peter Senge did on the road less traveled. And the 20 people got so inspired by <laughs> this, you know, six month deep dive that I think 18 of us left to do different things. Um, I, when I left Coke, I was pregnant with my third son and spent some time, you know, kind of having a, an extended maternity leave and, and remodeling a house that we had uh, just bought. Um, but then was really put it out to the universe that, you know, I wanted to be the CEO of an organization that, you know, I could run with all this rich inspiration that I had gotten from Coca-Cola. And a couple of days later, um, I was in Saks buying fishnets to go to a party because one of the women I was mentoring uh, mentioned that this company called Spanx had made control top fishnets and I was still a little fat after having the baby. Um, and I was supposed to wear that in any black dress that I had and wound up talking to the sales manager about supply chain and why they were all sold out of this Spanx products that I wanted to buy. And the, uh, this young guy came walking up to me and said he had, a, you know, he had heard that I had a question about Spanx and it turned out he was the COO. And after a long conversation about supply chain and my running clothes with my stroller and the baby at Saks, 
um, started consulting with him at Spanx, which quickly led to an invitation, you know, to run the company. Um, there were just three or four people in the company at the time. Before you joined, did you end up meeting the team members? Did you, like, how did you make the decision that, like, hey, this was the CEO <laughs> job I wanted to take? You know, um, it was, I, I, my life has happened with a series of serendipity events, and this was really one of the, the bigger ones. You know, there wasn't much of a team. It was Sarah, her, her ex-boyfriend, who was a technology consultant for about a year after school before he joined Sarah and, you know, helped her with the startup. Um, you know, it was something that I immediately had vision that I could build and, you know, really create something spectacular from. Um, I loved Sarah. You know, Dave was terrific too, but it wasn't so much the team as it was what I thought I could bring to the opportunity. And taking everything that I had, you know, learned at Coca-Cola, um, it was really where I went to business school. I never got my MBA, but I learned about strategy and business planning and brands and, you know, then mixed that with this rich leadership thing. And I just felt like I got the product, I saw the opportunity, and I knew that I would, you know, be a great match um, to do that. And I think, you know, mostly I rely on my instincts and I pay a lot of attention to that intuition that, you know, tells me if something feels right. Um, I'm also very, you know, about checking data. <laughs> so, you know, I, I trust my gut, um, but then, you know, I, I, I really go back and try to find tangible reasons why I should trust my gut. And if it becomes a tie, the gut wins, <laughs> but, um, <laughs> But this was was definitely one that, you know, I um, that I felt really strongly about. And, you know, a lot of times these things don't make sense. Um, you know, they don't make rational sense. But, you you know, I felt, a, a, you know, really kind of a, a compulsion, you know, to, to go do it. And, you know, I'm a big believer that, you know, you just have so much knowledge that's not like right in front of you. And, um I've really learned to exercise the muscle of, you know, getting in touch with, with that part of my decision-making might sound a little bit, you know, soft and mushy for a, a CEO and board director, but it, it's just happened time and time again, that that was the best path. No, I think it's a good lesson for anyone pursuing anything. Honestly, it's follow your intuition, but find some data to confirm that your intuition is correct, or at least potentially correct. At least potentially correct, because you never really get there. You know, it's um, it's about risk taking and um, in a risk situation, you're never able to collect all the data that you need. You know, often I ask people in um, an interview setting, you know, if you know, tell me about a time when you didn't have all the information you needed to make a decision, you know, what would you, what did you do and how did you come to, to making the decision? And um, it tells me a lot about, you know, somebody's ability to, you know, take those leaps of faith that uh, we all need to do to kind of get to the, the next place. When you took the job at Spanx, were there any meaningful experiences or lessons learned that you were able to take with you that were very impactful at your next job as CEO? Yeah, you know, well, like I said, I started, you know, with like really wanting to make 
um, a real world impact and, you know, to lead, um, lead a company. Um, and I, I think that I started with this concept that I brought with me to every role that I've had that, you know, to be effective, you have to think big, start small and scale fast. And so even when you're, um, a, a small company, you have to think of yourself, you know, down the road as really much bigger because then you're going to make decisions along the way, believing that, you know, you're, you're going to have this, this much larger company that you're going to be running. And I can give you some, you know, examples of that, you know, in terms of, um, you know, deciding we were going to be international pretty early on, you know, meant, um, registering, you know, the trademark in, in, you know, lots of main countries because we aspired to be that way. Um, I asked, you know, Ernst & Young to do a um, audit when we were, I don't know, like three years old. And they just said, you know, Lorian, we, we really like you. We, we're glad you're ambitious. But, you know, we don't do audits of like tiny companies, you know. And I said, yeah, but if you don't do my audit now, then, you know, I'm going to have to be fixing all these, you know, controls and charts of accounts and all the things that you're going to tell me later on. And that's going to take a lot longer to be able to um, to be able to do. So um, I think, you know, that that kind of concept of thinking big at the beginning is really important. Um, but then having kind of the the. You know, practical kind of risk tolerance for, you know, doing what matters first and testing it to make sure, you know, it's going to make a difference. And then, you know, really scaling it after you know that you have something. So when you joined Spanx, what was the scale of the business at the time? <laughs> well, I was the fifth employee. Um, it was uh, Sarah, the founder, um, her ex-boyfriend, who was the chief operating officer, um, her best friend's little sister and, um, somebody right out of school. So, you know, we were, uh, you know, a, a little, you know, a little founding team, um, you know, somebody doing product development, um, you know, who Sarah had known for a long time, um, you know, somebody figuring out, how to sell into stores, doing operations. We were lean and mean. So um, we had the fishnets were our second product after the footless pantyhose. And, um, you know, then we started launching additional products. And from the beginning when you joined, was there an explicit understanding that the company wasn't going to raise outside capital or did it just end up turning out that way? Um. I think that it was, it really kind of was less a decision like I, but more of a standard. So I would say I held myself to the standard of, you know, could I make products that consumers would buy that would self-fund the business because they were successful? So it was a high standard that I wanted to see if I could kind of meet and beat you know, versus kind of a strategic decision of, you know, no, we don't want outside capital and we'll never take it. 
And with that limit in capital, did you find any of your early initiatives challenging to get off the ground? Well, um, it's always challenging to to get anything off the ground. And I've found that money is usually not the challenge. Um, You know, there, you know, because when you create something great that, you know, um, people love, um, you know, they'll tell other people about it. And, you know, that organic growth will mean a lot to, you know, to to the business. Um, you know, a lot of times it's like kind of, I think of a, a cop out, you know, certainly there were times where, you know, with inventory, depending on lead times, we had to make big, big bets on, you know, inventory purchases, which took a lot of capital, you know, sometimes like money can be such a scapegoat, you know, and I find that the reason that things are constraining, you know, is usually not about money. Um, because if you have a, a a great product that people love, you know whether it's a technology product or it's a power panty, um, you know if the people that use your product love it, then you know they're they're going to put money into it, and the margin that you're making, if you've been disciplined about that, you know will continue to be in an upward spiral there were certainly times that we had to make big bets on inventory that were scary because that's a lot of where the working capital you know went to um but you know again that wasn't about money that was about you know innovation and the quality of the product and does the same hold true for talent and hiring great people do you think it was difficult to attract them to the business with limited budget or is it, Hey, we have a great product. We're building something special and that alone sells itself. Yeah. I think, I think that people, um, you can't start off in, in the business by putting all your money and buying expensive people. So you either build, buy or borrow talent. Um, and you know, what, what I did was a lot of borrowing and building, um, versus buying, buying. So, you know, I, I took people that used to always say wanted to pedal uphill, you know, wanted to learn something new and really wanted to have that opportunity, you know, at a certain point in their career, um, to do something, you know, different, better and special. And I felt that I could build their careers. There's a book called Hiring A Players and like somewhere in the middle of the page, somewhere in the middle of the book, there's this list of, of capabilities. And um, I don't know, it's probably maybe 30 different capabilities. And they are broken up into um, those that are easy to coach, you know, in terms of, of building. So maybe something that would be easy to coach would be... Um, presentation skills, you know, um, things that are difficult, but doable, you know, to coach. Um, Maybe an example of that might be strategic thinking, you know, maybe somebody really hasn't been asked to think strategically about things. So, you know, you can, you know, you can train somebody to think, um, you know, about broader impacts and, you know, critical paths and how, you know, you efficiently get from one place to another through a strategy. And then the last column were things that are not coachable. 
Um, EQ and IQ, I found really are not coachable. If you don't have self-awareness, it's very hard to get there. So I, I really stayed away from if I got any signals of EQ or IQ problems, you know, to, to stay away, you know, from that. Um, I think sometimes it's hard to, if you're looking for dynamic, you know, somebody that's very dynamic, um, you're, you know, you're not going to be able to teach somebody how to be that and have that come across authentically, you know, if that's what you're looking for in a particular, you know, position. Do you have any specific tactics for how to screen for EQ in interviews or is it just a matter of spending enough time with people? Um, you know, I, I very much look at, you know, I, I usually do behavioral interviewing, which means that the best predictor of past, of future behavior is past behavior. So I ask for really specific, really specific questions because I think it makes an interviewer and an interviewee more comfortable, you know. It's um, because you have real topics that you're talking about and not so much small talk and somebody making you feel good. And at the end of the interview, you don't have any notes where I always take notes in interviews. And as I'm doing an interview um, on the EQ stuff, I just, you know, am aware and, you know, is somebody, um, you know, giving eye contact, you know, if, you know, if I kind of, go, you know, go off track or ask them something or make a joke, you know, what is the, you know, what is their quick reaction to things? I remember one time I was interviewed <laughs> for a board position and I'm sitting at a table with my cup of coffee and a very senior search executive um, comes in and he had like a, a, you know, like a, you know, knapsack or, a, you know, bag of some kind. And he, you know, like kind of roughs over to the table and puts his bag right on the table and spills the coffee all over me. And I was like, wow, <laughs> you know, my first reaction was like, <laughs> I have coffee all over my nice clothes right now. But he did that, I believe, deliberately in retrospect to see what my natural reaction would be to something like that. You know, like think about how different people would react, you know, either, you know, God damn it, what have you done? <laughs> you know, or, you know, God, you're, a, you know, you're such a klutz. Or, you know, is it, you know, this is not a big deal. You know, how quickly do you get over it? You know, how, how could I make him feel comfortable, you know, for making the mistake? So, so I look for just kind of those small things um, that, you know, that, that talk about either, um, judgment or how people, how quickly some quick a learner someone is. Um, when I ask them questions about past behavior, I'm looking for EQ and IQ, you know, and you know, I, one of the questions I'll usually ask is, you know, tell me about a relationship that didn't go very well. Um, and that gets a lot at how somebody thinks about collaboration. So you get into Spanx and, and, you know, we talked about the constraints around budget and, and how you combated that with building great product. Um, what was the first key initiative you undertook at the business? Writing a business plan. <laughs> 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 um, I believe that you don't have a strategy unless it's on paper. 
and um, and you have to take a stab at you know your best guess as to what's going to happen given you know the the actions you know that you've planned and you know probably all those years at Coca-Cola that's what I took away most is kind of the muscle to you know have a vision make a plan execute that plan you know rinse and repeat um because it's always you know it's it's things are always going to surprise you but if you don't start off in a direction i just find like you can't go as fast and you know now there's like you know apps that measure you know objectives and results and progress and you know back then we didn't have any of that are okay are something that you did with your team uh back in the day i feel like that's now uh, the biggest trend in, in the tech industry, everyone has OKRs, but is it something that you implemented back at Spanx? Yeah, we just didn't, you know, probably do it in like the technology kind of way, but it, it was still what we were doing, you know, yeah. I mean, it, it was still the, you know, the same thing. So, um, and I, you know, you know, if you measure it, it will get better. You know, one of my big things is always like anything you measure improves. Yeah. Um, you know, it just by the focus of, of purely measuring it. You know, if you say, even if you said to yourself, you know, I'm, I'm not going to rate myself on what time I get up in the morning, but if I get up earlier, it's better. I'm just going to write down what time I wake up every day. You would keep waking up earlier, <laughs> you know? Just because that became something that you wanted, you know, to focus on and was in your, you know, sphere of influence. No, absolutely. At first, Mark, the last firm I was with, we would see with this with portfolio companies all the time. Anything you wanted to see an increased activity, you just start measuring it, tracking it, making it public, and it magically started to go up. Exactly. Exactly. That's exactly right. Uh, so you spend 12 years as CEO of Spanx and, you know, quite successful, obviously, and that's pretty public, um, <laughs> but you didn't call it a career, even though you could have. So you go on to become the CEO of Avon. That was, I guess, a few years later, uh, which you then successfully exited, I think, within a couple of years. So yeah. why did you decide to take that job and, and, you know, what was it that you felt you had to accomplish? You know, I, I, I think that um, I'm a lifelong learner and um, can really think of myself as a student in, in so many ways. Um, and, you know, after leaving Spanx, I, you know, it, 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 you know when you are at a company that long, um, you know, it's, it's a breakup, it's a divorce, you know, it's you're really changing you know, your, your, the whole landscape of, of what you've done, um, you know, after that period of time. And so I wanted to go, you know, do some speed dating with, with other companies and get more perspective because I'd been so focused on Spanx for so long. So, you know, working with private equity, um, you know, on diligence and the companies that they were looking at and, you know, mentoring young entrepreneurs and, um, you know, doing board work all gave me like inside information to what it would be like, you know, to work in, you know, in different businesses. And um, that was super fun. 
Um, and I really got an appreciation for like what a wow Spanx was and what, you know, the team really did there. Um, you know, Avon was, I was on the board of Avon when they asked me to, to lead the company. And it was the first, um, my first effort at doing a turnaround. You know, I had, um, Spanx was obviously growth, you know, when I, I grew the, you know, the licensing business at, at Coke, it was growth and all the private equity firms I was working with were focused on growth as well. So this was the first turnaround. Um, and what I found was that, you know, the basic skill set was exactly, you know, the same for growth and, you know, for turnaround, you know, you had to focus on a vision and the brand and how do you get from, you know, current reality to a destination in the future that you dream about, you know, through making good strategic choices. So I had to do um, focus much more on 13 week cash flows. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, I had uh, practically a department focused on cost savings, which was, you know, super fun um, and a different challenge. Um, But we, we got the company in a good place and, um, and did exit it. Um, And it was really, you know, challenging myself to put myself in kind of a discomfort place um to see if i could do it and were there any key lessons you took from Spanx? you mentioned the similarities between running a growth company and doing a turnaround are actually quite similar were there any key experiences or lessons learned at Spanx that really helped with the avon opportunity i think probably the the biggest was how powerful a hero product can be um and you know avon had enormously diversified um, and had thousands and thousands of SKUs. Um, so, you know, one of the things I took from from Avon was, you know, really ride a winner. I mean, from Spanx was ride a winner a lot longer maybe than you think you could to reach, you know, new heights and levels. Um, and, you know, that diversification can be div- diversification, you know. So, you know, we had let's say you you take a lip gloss and you say, you know, we, we really need to do this lip gloss in 12 different colors because, you know, some people want purples and some people want red and there's lots of different skin tones and colors and preferences. And so we need, you know, a whole assortment of lip glosses. But, you know, it, when you get down to it, you know, after a three-week period, you know, there were three out of the 12 that were by far the best sellers. And, you know, so did you really, could you not figure out what those three were before you launched 12? <laughs> you know, um, so it was, it was really focusing on, you know, skew productivity um, and, you know, riding the winners and make sure you were paying attention to, you know, the products that, you were were getting the most margin and revenue, you know, while you were looking for new winners and, you know, wanted to have something that could be like a big success. Got it. Yeah. We, it's, it's interesting. We see a lot of companies that have one product that makes up for, it's like the classic 80, 20 rule. Yeah, one product makes up for, or a couple of products make up for 80% plus of the revenue. And uh, you know, some people look at that as, a negative in the sense that they're relying so heavily on one product. However, um, you know, your framing makes it seem very positive and allows you to build upon something that's, you know, foundational. Yeah. I mean, you, you know, you really, and I think, you know, today, um, 
when we have such a digital e-commerce world, you know, that we're living in, it's just hard to get attention beyond that, you know? So, um, you know, if everybody could have a successful business with just one product, it'd be wonderful, you know, but to continue to grow at some, at some point, you know, you either need to continue to find, you know, a world of new consumers for that one product, um, which usually you don't have time to do before competition comes and, you know, changes the rules of the road. Um, and on the other hand, you know, take those loyal, true believer customers that you have and understand them to a level, you know, that it makes sense to bring them, you know, new products that they haven't tried that have the same, same brand DNA, you know, that you started with. You just mentioned competition. How much do you pay attention to competition as a CEO and how much do you focus on internal? Much more focused on internal. Um, I think you always have to look at the competitive landscape, but I never, you know, never over indexed on, on that because, you know, if you're following then somebody else is leading. And by the time you try to catch up with them, they will have like gone to a new place. So, you know, I, I think you got to do your own thing. Um, and, you know, the goal is to leapfrog, not follow. And so, you know, you have to spend, you know, some time on competition, but I've just seen some people, you know, just obsessed with competition and that usually doesn't work out very well. And I guess same question as a board member. Do you focus more on internal or competition? Um, I think every industry is a little different. Um, some of the, the boards that I'm on, you know, one in particular, you know, has one very large competitor. You know, it's kind of like a, a Coke and Pepsi thing. Um, but most of the time, you know, that's not the case. And, you know, if, if, if investors are focused on your competitor, then you have to understand what's going on, um, you know, as well. But, you know, it never feels so, it's always feels better to be, you know, a market leader and, uh, you know, not a copycat. Yeah. And, and just one more question for me on the board front. You have an incredible list of boards. Just from a quick glance, looks like Joe and the Juice, Guess, uh, previously Avon, a number of others like Club Corp. What makes you a great board member and what do you think founders should look for on a board? Um, I think, you know, the, the, the trick for me being a board member was to learn kind of what my role was. And, you know, my first approach was to just act like a CEO. And then I realized that, you know, every CEO of the company that I was on the board of would hate me if I did that. <laughs> um, um, so you have to learn how to, um, I think, ask wise questions that make people think. I think a lot of times your, your role as a board member is to give confidence to the CEO that they're on the right direction and, um, you know, that they don't feel so vulnerable, you know, kind of out doing things themselves, but that in your experience, their, their strategy makes sense. And uh, you should, you know, they should celebrate that and you should celebrate them. Um, you know, many times it's, it's, it's really even on these really, you know, you know, over billion dollar companies, multi-billion dollar companies, um, you know, it's, it's really around seeing around corners and pattern recognition. 
Um, you know, there's lots that that can translate between these companies, you know, whether it's food and beverage, I'm on the board of a, a movie studio, um, and there's still, you know, there's still ability to connect the dots on, you know, lots of, of common themes, you know, capital allocation, um, you know, marketing effectiveness, you know, culture, leadership, um, content, you know, product quality. I mean, all of, you know, whether you're um, producing a movie, a cup of coffee, you know, fighting, you know, um, pests, you know, for pest control with Terminex, you know, are selling jeans. I mean, it's, you know, it's, you have to put the, the product, you know, before, you know, the product quality, you know, before the transaction or, you know, your transactions are going to dry up and, you know, put the brand ahead of, you know, ahead of margin. And so you, you know, you learn these things over time and they really do cross all the, cross all the in industries. I think the, the most important thing is to have the, the right trust um, with the, the people on your board and to make sure that, you know, where, why they're really there is to help you and the company um, and not, you know, for other self-interested reasons. Well, I think that's a great final lesson for founders listening to this to take home with them. So thank you very much for doing this. I really appreciate your time and I'm excited to see your continued success as a board member and, and perhaps yeah, as a CEO Yeah, well, I've been again. doing some stuff in venture lately. Um, so we uh, really having a good time um, on that too. So um, it's fun to, to see all the changes, even though we're in a really weird time in the world. You know, there's, it's so full of opportunities. So, um, you know, and, and you just see amazing things coming from, you know, from, from startups and venture and, you know, what's going on in that. And it's of, you know, high focus for me now. Any particular areas? Are you investing directly into consumer products, or are you looking at um, other things? It's not, it's things that I'm working on, not uh, necessarily investing in. Um, you know, making a, a time commitment. You know, on I'm really interested in healthcare right now um, because I think there's so so much opportunity to to make explosive impact on on that business, and you know, so much of it is getting much more consumer focused. Um, as the consumer takes more control over, you know, the process and the care that they're getting. And so my consumer experience, I think, can be really helpful there. Absolutely. Well, as I see, great healthcare entrepreneurs. <laughs> Sounds great. Andrew, thanks so much for inviting me um, to be on your podcast. And, you know, Reformation Partners is doing amazing things. And I love your approach. And, um, just really wish you every success uh, for you and your founders going forward as there possibly can be. Thank you so much. Always appreciate your support. Okay. Laurie. Speak soon. Bye-bye.